shown such great mercy by our God should be the most merciful people on the planet. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts today, that you would convict us. Perhaps there's somebody in here that, that needs to receive that mercy from you today and that they would for the first time trust in you, Jesus, and what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So we've just spent time looking at the Beatitudes. And, and what we've said is this. The Beatitudes are Jesus' way of just saying, hey, if you want a good life, if you're looking for the blessed life, the happy life, then it's found right here in these principles of the kingdom that I'm giving you. And what we have to understand, and we've said this every week, is that the Beatitudes are not a list of things that you have to do to earn or merit your salvation. So in other words, you don't go do the Beatitudes and then you're saved. No, first you trust in Jesus and what he's done for you, and then an outflow of that in your life are these Beatitudes, are these things that Jesus talks about. The Beatitudes are things that we're to be. They're things that we, as believers, are to embody. And last week, Job did a great job talking to us about what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It means that, that we don't have a righteousness of our own. It means we're bankrupt. Bro. It means that, that we're not good. It means that we can't muster up righteousness. It means we can't create goodness in us is that it, it has to come from outside of us, that all of us are dependent on someone or something to give us what we cannot naturally do on our own. And Joe did an incredible job illustrating 
what that looks like through his track career, if you were here and you remember that story. Right? We got a picture of 13-year-old Joe, full beard, chest hair, right? <laughs> like running. That, that's accurate, right? Uh, pretty much, okay. Right? I'm 40, and this is as good as it gets right there. Right? But, but it was like the most Joe thing ever is getting to that last hurdle and, and just trying to run through it, being unable to run through it, falling down, busting himself up, and then just grabbing the hurdle, setting it in the other lane, and going and telling his mom, just take me home. And a few weeks later, if you remember his story, a medal came in the mail saying that he had won second place even though he didn't. See, Job was given something he didn't earn, and the same goes for you and I. That when we trusted in Jesus, we are given something that we did not earn. We're given Jesus' perfect life. And he says that those who hunger and thirst for that, for that righteousness, they will be satisfied because Jesus will fill them with what they cannot do on their own. But the flip side of this is that those who <coughs> hunger and thirst for righteousness, once they receive it, they then to seek to live a righteous life because of the one who gifted his life for theirs. Now these first four Beatitudes, they're all internal. So, so they've done, they dealt with our hearts. They've dealt with things that, that happen on the inside of us. And even meekness deals with what's going on inside of us. But the next four, they deal with the external actions that flow from these internal realities, okay? So now this is going to be the very public part of your Christian life from here on out. So this week I was reading an article on, on GoFundMe, right? Everybody familiar with GoFundMe, right? Uh, every one of us has probably uh, read about a GoFundMe and we've donated to a GoFundMe. You've seen something on the news or social media about a deserving person who... Uh, receives a much-needed surgery or a major improvement for their home that's that's falling apart, something like that. We love those stories. There's a lot of cool stories. There's a lot of inspirational stories on that. But this article talked about the dark side of GoFundMe. So for every story that you and I see of people that receive all this money, right, that they just raise this insane amount of money and get a heart transplant or whatever it is, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these GoFundMes that never even get off the ground. And so researchers analyzing these crowdfunding websites found out what makes a successful GoFundMe, right? Now listen, I quote from the article here. The author says this, what makes a successful GoFundMe boils down to who you are and who you know, which sounds a lot like getting into jail. Most donor pools are made up of friends, family, and acquaintances, giving an advantage to a relatively affluent people with large, well-resourced networks. A recent Canadian study found that people crowdfunding, or the people that make the most crowdfunding, tend to be high income, high education, and high ownership zip. Isn't that kind of interesting to think about? Like we tend to think that it's always the, the most deserving or, or the least of these that are, that are receiving or that are getting from these crowdfunding sites. But in reality, it's just set up and it's rigged to benefit those who have the most money or the most connected or the most affluent. My point with this is that often the people that receive money on these sites or the people that receive mercy on these sites are the people that are already surrounded with a pretty good care group of mercy. And I'm not saying everybody's like that. I'm not. But I think this is a really good intro into the fifth beatitude is that sometimes we're pretty choosy in who we give mercy to and who we don't, right? 
Or you think about a crowdfunding website and that if a certain person in this community were crowdfunding, we'd go, oh, I'll give to them. If a certain other person in this community was crowdfunding, we might go, all these things, and you can choose the university. So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Look what Jesus says. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So Mark Lord Jones tells us that a Christian is something before he does anything. And so we must be a Christian before we can act as Christians. So a Christian is something before he does anything, right? We must be a Christian before we can act as Christians. So being is more important than doing. Attitude is more significant than action. And we have to start there before we break down this, this beatitude, because if we don't, we'll make the mistake thinking that the New Testament tells us that we have to try and be a Christian, or we have to try and live a Christian life by doing this or that before we're saved. We'll, we'll make the mistake of, of thinking that our actions and our attitudes are what saves us instead of realizing that, no, 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 trusting in Jesus first and foremost is what saves us. Our actions and our attitudes are the outflow of that. They're the outcome of what Jesus has done for us. So like Joe told us last week, we receive the righteousness of Christ first, and we become Christians. We become little Christ. We become followers of Jesus then we live out the implications of that in our life. Again, I quote Martin Lloyd-Jones here. Brilliant man. He says, the Christian faith is not something on the surface of a man's life. All right? Bible Belt Christian. It's not something on the surface of a man's life. It's not merely a kind of coating or veneer. No, it's something that's been happening in the very center of his personality. That is why the New Testament talks about rebirth and being born again about a new creation, and about receiving a new nature. It is something that happens to a man in the very center of his being. It controls all of his thoughts, all his outlook, all his imagination, and as a result, all his actions as well. So all our activities, therefore, are the result of this new nature, this new disposition which we've received from God through the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? It is something we are to be before we do. So everything flows out of a new heart, of a new nature, of a new disposition. So if you're a Christian, if you can say, yes, hey, Byron, that's me. I trusted in Christ. Then the question before you and I is, are we merciful? Those who've been shown mercy, are we then merciful people? So let me just get out of the way what mercy isn't. I think there's some misconceptions. So first off, mercy isn't just an easygoing and laid-back person. Right? Everybody know that person? They just kind of go with the flow. They're laid back. Nothing bothers them too much. Direct opposite of what I am. Right? I'm so high-strung. It's not even funny. Um, easygoing, laid-back. Mercy doesn't mean that we smile at sin and its effects. Right? Mercy doesn't say, well, just do what you want. Right? Tolerance. Love is love. It doesn't matter how people live. Mercy is none of those things, so get that out of your head. Mercy is not set aside for certain temperaments. Now, sure, there are people, the Bible says, that have the spiritual gift of mercy. Anybody ever met them? 
right? You know people that are merciful. You know people you, that can just look at others and they just feel something on the inside of who they are. They're kind. They're compassionate. Like God has given them that gift. There are people that have that. But what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5 is not that. He's talking about mercy in the general sense that if you're a believer in Jesus, you should possess. So it's mercy that we're all to have. Mercy is not grace. Right? We, we conflate the two. We think mercy and grace are the same thing. Well, Paul makes a very clear distinction in the pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, look what he says. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. See, they're different things. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a distinction between mercy and grace. For example, one commentator says that grace is associated with men and their sins. Mercy is associated with men in their misery. So, so grace is associated with men and their sins. Mercy is associated with men and their misery. So in other words, grace looks down at sin as a whole. Mercy looks at the miserable consequences of sin. Right? Does that make sense? Mercy means a sense of pity that leads to a desire to believe the suffering. So mercy is pity plus action. Very simple. Mercy is pity plus action. Mercy offers relief from punishment. Grace offers pardon for the crime. All right? Give you a great illustration. Maybe this will help you. So let's just say after church today, I'm starving, right? Uh, one low socios tacos. All I've been thinking about all day, right? Shrimp taco craving. And so let's say, like, I just get out of here after church. Don't want to talk to any of you anyways. Get in the car and I leave, okay? And let's say for some reason that day the van goes over 40 miles an hour. So I'm going down the road, going 60. I'm hitting every dip. I don't care. Sparks coming out from underneath the car. Uh, blowing through stop signs. I'm almost to low socios and I hear, whip, whip. Pull over. Right? Officer walks up and says, hey, Pastor, you're going real fast today. You know, what's the big deal? Listen, officer, you don't get it, man. Those shrimp tacos. I'm thinking about them. I'm dreaming about them. Um, I'm sweating up here because I just was so hungry. Um, and, and frankly, I just wanted to be all my church members there. If I'd be Methodist, even better, right? That, that's kind of what I was going for. <laughs> officer looks at me for a long time, and then the officer goes, you know what? Hey, I tell you what, Byron. I can appreciate a good blow socios tacos as much as the next guy. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a warning today. See what happened at that moment? At that moment, he's showing me mercy. He isn't giving me what I deserve. Okay? But then he looks at me and he goes, on top of that, I'm going to escort you the rest of the way in. When we get there, we'll get everybody out of the way, and I'm buying you lunch today. See, that's grace. That's giving me a blessing I don't deserve, all right? So do you see the difference between mercy and grace? So, so practically speaking, then, what does mercy look like in our lives? So let's say you find yourself in the position of this police officer, right? I transgress the law. Going 60, shouldn't be going 60, blew through stop signs, not being very careful. He had every right, and he had the power to punish me but he shows me mercy. So what do you do then 
when you find yourself in a power position over someone who sinned against you or hurt you. Right? And draw it out. Don't just think personally. Think even your family. Somebody who sinned against your family or hurt you, hurt your kids, hurt your relatives, whatever it is. See, the way to know if you're being merciful or not is how do you feel toward that person? So do so you say, well, 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 I've got them in my debt now. I'm going to make them pay. I've got the dirt on them. They're going down. Or do you feel sorrow? Do you feel pity for that person and their sin? Most of us don't feel that way, do we? And in a small town, a lot of times we're, we're not going to go out of our way and do something physical with it, right? We're not going to show them and be like, hey, you want to go, right? I know what you did. I mean, maybe some of you go down to Brick Street or after Heritage Day or some of you acted like fools anyways, right? And then maybe you get to fight. I, I don't know. That's uncomfortable. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but here's what we do. Let's just be real honest. Here's what we do most of the time. That person that hurt us, that person that we're angry at, we wait till maybe they're getting ahead just a little bit. Maybe they're getting some attention. Maybe they're getting some acclaim or some recognition in town. Or, or maybe you overhear somebody say, man, they're such a good person. And then what do we do? Well, <laughs> have you heard? <laughs> I don't know what you think is so wonderful about them, because let me just tell you what they've been doing on the side. You know what they did? See, we make them pay by taking out their reputation. See, mercy doesn't hold a grudge. Mercy doesn't harbor resentment. Mercy doesn't capitalize on another's failure or weakness or publicize another's sin. It forgives. Mercy shown through meeting needs. So when you see that family, when you see that individual, hungry, they're struggling, and you have the means to help, you help. Mercy shown through acts of kindness towards the less fortunate. And that works itself out in two ways. As you have through the church, through acts of benevolence that we do as a corporate body. But listen, mercy should also be shown in your individual lives and the things that you do even inside your own family or you do personally that maybe nobody knows anything about. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 8, look what it says. It says, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. In other words, we care for those who need help. That's mercy. Mercy shown for caring for those who can't care for themselves. When we see those with special needs, perhaps, or when we see the elderly who need help, we're to care for them. I love what Jesus tells him, his disciples in Luke 14, 13. He says, But when you give a feast, notice what he says. He doesn't say invite like the fancy and the well to do and the, the popular people. What's he say? Invite the poor, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind. In other words, care for those who can't care for themselves. Right? This is my life. I'll give you some practical tips. Teach your kids to be kind. Teach your kids to have empathy. Teach your kids to understand that 
not everybody's born with a good day off. I'll give you one. You may find this silly, but, but it's a great act of mercy, I promise you. When you go to a bathroom, you don't need the handicapped stall. Don't use it. Right? I mean, that is a great act of mercy to be able to go in there and take advantage of something that's set aside for somebody who needs it. Right? It's really hard to get in some of those little big, tiny stalls, right? You know, you're trying to work in there. It's a great act of mercy when Rye goes into places, and this has happened, and people go, hey, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize that. And they get out of the way, and they, they give you something, right? Be kind. Be kind towards the elderly. Be kind to those who cannot take care of themselves. That's what mercy <coughs> looks like, all right? Listen to this one. Mercy shown through correction. It's shown through correction. Sometimes the most merciful thing we can do is correct. Amen? You all got kids, you know. It's like, well, I'm going to get a hold of that right now. I'm going to get a hold of that. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. Look at what Paul says. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God perhaps grant, uh, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So listen, it's a merciful thing to confront friends and family about patterns of sin that are disrupting their lives. It is unmerciful to continue to let them destroy their lives. So when you see a family member, a brother or sister, you say, hey, listen, that sin is destroying your soul. Or listen, that sin is destroying or harming your witness in the community you live in. That is a merciful thing to confront them on that. And that's a scary thing too, isn't it? Because at times mercy may be severe when the sin requires it. If you've ever dealt with anybody in the midst of drug or alcohol abuse, right? I've had several family members with drug abuse problems, and you, and you confront that family member about the drug abuse and alcohol abuse, it can get ugly in a hurry, can't it? It can be scary when you have to do those things. But listen, it is an act of mercy to confront it instead of allowing it to continue. That's mercy. Listen, mercy shown by praying. Praying for the lost is an act of mercy. John MacArthur says our mercy can be measured by our prayer for the unsaved and for Christians who are walking in disobedience. Oh, I cringed at that a little bit when I read it. Maybe you did. Because we don't do that as we should, do we? We don't pray for the lost as we should. See, we show mercy by sharing the gospel. Mercy shown as we grieve more over lost souls than lost bodies. We should grieve more over lost souls because the soul lives forever than lost bodies. See, when we hear the gospel, when we believe the gospel, it then goes to show that we would then share the gospel. Right? We then evangelize the lost. That is perhaps the most merciful thing that we can do as believers is to evangelize those who are lost and going to hell. And then Jesus shows us at the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, the result of mercy. Look what he says. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's a lot of confusion about that statement right there. Because many people will go, okay, so, so if I'm merciful to others, God will be merciful to me. Or if I forgive others, then God will forgive me. Right? Or maybe you've taught your kids this way. Be nice to them and they'll be nice to you. It doesn't always work that way, does it? 
You ever remember being that kid going to school and be like, well, my mommy just said if I'm nice to this guy, right? And then he's not nice back, you're like, you're liar, mom. <laughs> and it doesn't always work that way. But, but it's the same with this thing, too. It is that, that we think that, if, okay, if I'm just nice and merciful and kind to others, then God will forgive me. And I think there's some confusion in it, right? Let, let me just show you. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, at the end of it, it says, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So, so some believe that it means that if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. That if you don't, you will not be forgiven. There's a similar statement. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18, just real quickly. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells this story in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, uh, about the unforgiving servant. Just listen to this story. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother... Uh, yeah, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, to settle one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay his master, could, could not pay his master, ordered him to be uh, sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So see, again, people say, well, does that not teach that I'm forgiven by God as long as I forgive others? And, and let me just tell you, I don't think that's what either one of these passages mean. I think there's some confusion there. Okay? So, so first, if that's exactly what these passages mean, right? If that's what it means, then, then, then there's not a single person in this room who's getting into heaven. I mean, not one of you. There, there's not one person in here that can raise their hand, but I, I harbor no bitterness against anybody. Liar! <laughs> right? Deep down, you all still have that person. And, and maybe some of you are further down the road than, than like me and others are, but, but you have that person that you're struggling to completely forgive. So that's what Jesus is saying. You're never getting in heaven. The second reason not to take that passage this way is that it cancels the whole doctrine of grace from the New Testament, right? We can never say we're sinners saved by grace through faith. <coughs> we, we can't say that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because what we must then say is that the condition for our forgiveness is that we completely forgive everybody, right? Are you following me on that? So that's not what Jesus means by these passages. So, so let's look at it this way, right? Pay attention. All the Beatitudes follow the previous one. So, I realize I'm poor in spirit. I have no righteousness. 
So face to face with God and his righteousness, I am completely helpless. That leads me to mourn because of the sin inside of me. I come to see how dark it is, which leads me to cry out like Paul, wretched man that I am. I've seen the effects of my sin and how it's disrupted my family, my personal life, my church. I've seen the way that it affects others in this world. And so therefore, I mourn my sin and my lack of righteousness. That causes me to be meek because now I have a true view of myself. Right? So you could come and say, oh, you're a horrible sinner. And I get to say, you don't know the half of it. I know who I am. I acknowledge that. And I allow others to say to me publicly what I already know to be true about me privately, which then humbles me. So therefore, knowing those things, what happens next? I hunger and I thirst for righteousness that I do not have. I've seen that I can't create it. I've seen that I can't produce it. Produce it, and I hunger and I thirst for that which can put me right with God. And guess what? I've seen that in Christ. And then I'm filled with the righteousness of Christ. I receive it as a free gift. And if I've seen all that about myself and my condition, and I found redemption in Christ, then does it not follow that my attitude towards everybody else is? That was the problem with the first servant. He received mercy and didn't give it. And so whenever he had the opportunity to show it, he showed cruelty and punishment. See, if all that's true of me, I no longer see others as I used to see them. Instead, now I see others with a Christian eye, and I realize that just like I used to be, they're dupes and they're victims of sin that they're slaves to Satan, they're slaves to the world, and that the Lord needs to lift the blinders off of them so that they can see who they are. And so we come to see people, not as, 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 as humans that we dislike, but as people to be pitied. Why are these people pitied? A lot of people out there that don't like Christians. There's just people that are hard to be merciful to. So how do I do all of this? It's just all so hard. It's the same way we do anything in the Christian life. It's not by trying to dig deep inside of you and find it. We've already looked at that. It ain't there. The way we do that is that we look to the supreme example of mercy. Look to Jesus Christ on the cross. Look to the one who never sinned, who never did harm to anyone, who came and he preached the truth. The one who came to seek and save the lost. And while on the cross, what did Jesus do? He looks out at all the people who are actively murdering him. The people responsible for his death. And he says what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That they're slaves. They're duped to sin. They're, they're bound by Satan in this world. You and I are called to become that. Look to Stephen the martyr. As he's being pelted with stones for his faith in Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, he cries, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, he has pity on those who are throwing stones at him. He's merciful to them. And the reason he's merciful is because he knew his God had been merciful to him. See, if we've grasped the four, first four Beatitudes, that should be our attitude towards everyone. Amen? And think about this. 
How strange would this quality be in our world today? We live in a world and in a time when civil disagreement is out the window. And don't start going, I know those liberals, you're just as bad. Every one of you. Look at the Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist Convention this week. We are not drifting leftward. We're not becoming just slamming liberals. Our fight is beginning ultra-conservatives and conservatives. And what did they do? Fight all week. It used to be that we could go to the convention and say, Hey, brother, sister, I disagree with you on that point, but I'm going to go back and continue to share the gospel and work toward the ultimate mission. Now what do we do? We just rip each other apart. It's horrible, right? There was even some dude trying to push a conspiracy theory this week that the election was rigged in the Southern Baptist Convention. Right? Good grief, man. So how different would that be in our, our society? When, when people disagree with us, when people malign our character, when they badmouth our kids, that if we were a Christian, we would look at the cross and realize that I'm a debtor to mercy and mercy alone. If I know I'm a Christian by the free grace of God, there should be no pride in me. There should be no insisting on my rights. Well, I just can't stand them, Byron. You don't get it. It's really, really hard to be merciful in them. Can I show you something? I'm going to blow your mind. You ready? The older I get, one of the things I'm learning more and more and more is that the people I often have the hardest time being merciful to are the people who most remind me of myself. Pride don't see well, does it? Sometimes we're blind to our sin because we think we're pretty awesome. Then we see our sin in somebody else. And that person bothers us. That person gets on our nerves. See, when that happens, we should be thankful for the mercy of God to show us our sin. And then we should turn around and repent of our sin. And when we do, we see that God's merciful to us. Which then frees us to be merciful to that person that's driving us crazy. Again, listen to Mark Lloyd-Jones. Repentance means, among other things, that I realize I have no claim on God at all. And that it's only His grace and mercy that forgive. And it follows as the night, the day, that the man who truly realizes his position face to face with God and his relationship to God is the man who most of necessity and mercifully respects others. See, when you die and stand before the Lord Jesus, every single one of us in this room will be merciful. See, what? But thanks be to God, if we've been pardoned because of the blood of Jesus. But what makes us merciful is the grace of God. So if the grace of God has not made me merciful, there's really only one explanation. I never understand the grace and the mercy of God when I'm outside of Christ. And listen, that has been messing me up all week. Because I'll stand up here as your pastor and say, I, I am not a merciful person. I, I, I have a lot of anger and bitterness and, and things in my heart that the Lord's been pulling the surface all week as I've studied it. I told Mariah all week, I'm like, I'm merciful, right? I've been using it against her too. She says something, I'm like, that's saying merciful. <laughs> <laughs> so hear me on this. Every single one of us should examine ourselves today. 
I'm not asking you to ask what sort of life that I'm living. I'm not asking you whether you have a general interest in Christ and his church. I'm asking you, are you merciful? Are you sorry for every sinner who Satan in this world has polluted? Are you compassionate for the sinners? Even though those sinners may offend you, See, blessed are the merciful. They shall receive the mercy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the day, and I thank you for all you've given us. I come to you right now, and I ask, first and foremost, as the lead repenter in this church, that I am not very merciful, and I need forgiveness. So, Father, how can we as people who say we've trusted and received the mercy of Jesus Christ, not in turn be merciful to others. So I pray today that, that First Baptist Church would become a church known for its mercy. It would become known as a church for its kindness, for its compassion. That we would be a church that would pray for the lost. That we would be a church that would evangelize the lost. As we said, we would care more about lost souls than lost bodies. Oh, there's anyone in here that does not know you today. The gospel's been preached. I pray that you realize that, that you've shown them that they, they don't have a chance outside of you. That there's nothing in them that is, that is good, and, and there's no righteousness in them. And so they are in need of a foreign or an alien righteousness that's only given to us by Jesus Christ. And so I pray today that, Father, you would reveal their need to them and that they would come to the table today and they would find forgiveness in it. Give us for a lack of mercy. I'll just look to Jesus and we thank you. He paid it all. So we can be forgiven. If you would please stand.